Hey, you're listening to a sermon from Ketchikan Church of the Nazarene. Thanks for listening. If you'd like more information about our church, you can visit ktnnaz.org. Visit us on Facebook, just search Ketchikan Naz, or you can download our free app from the iPhone store or the Google Play store. Just search Ketchikan Naz. Thanks for visiting. Hope the word of God speaks to you today. Boy, that really thins us out. I'm always amazed how many children we have. Every week they multiply. It's great. Well, uh, today we are going to be uh, in Matthew chapter 6, or 26. We're Matthew chapter 26. We're going to be in verses 1 through 13. And Anna read the passage for us this morning. It's the story of the woman with the alabaster jar who broke it over, not over Jesus' head, but broke it and then poured it over Jesus' head, right? And uh, this morning, as we study the word, uh, we want to also recognize that while we are seated here on Sunday morning, there are folks that are watching us online through the Periscope app. So if everyone could just do me a favor and give them a little welcome so that they feel like part of our, yeah. Uh, We're glad that you guys are here. Hope you tune in. If you have questions or comments, just type them and we'll respond to them at the end of the service or tomorrow morning. Um, So for those of you that don't know, we live stream our services for those folks that are sick or on vacation or joining us from who knows where across the world. We've had now about 160 folks tune in to our two services over the past two weeks. That's been pretty exciting. And another 15 or 20 that watch the service later on during the course of the week. So it's neat to be able to reach more people for Jesus with like one button press, okay? That's the goal. It's pretty easy to reach more people when we can live broadcast. So thank you for uh, encouraging those folks who are joining us from afar. In Matthew chapter 26, verses 1 through 13, I don't even bring my remote. So are you with me on this one, Jerry? Because I left my remote on the stage, okay? We're good right there where we are with that alabaster jar. Um, This story of the lady with the alabaster jar is not only found in Matthew 26, okay? This is a story that's found in all four Gospels. Not every story in the Scripture is found in all four Gospels. This one is found in all four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and John tell a nearly identical version. Luke tells a slightly different version, which gives us the idea that this is not a one-time occurrence, but that it was multiple times that a broken-hearted woman came before Jesus and offered him a great sacrifice. A broken-hearted woman came before Jesus and worshipped him in an extravagant way. So whether you read the account of the woman in Luke, who was the one who wept on Jesus' feet and then dried his feet with her hair, or you read the one in Matthew, Mark, and John, who the lady said nothing, we don't hear of her crying, but she anointed Jesus with the oil that she had, the similar qualities of the story are apparent. In all four accounts, there is a woman who was brokenhearted, a woman who had absolutely no hope left but to find Jesus and bow down before him and worship him. Now, the similar qualities of the story break out like this. Jesus shared a meal with either his disciples or the leaders of the day. So in both contexts, Jesus is reclining kind of at a table like this, And in their day and age, they didn't sit in chairs, right? Not like we have fancy dining room tables. So when they were eating, they would do something like this, okay? And they'd recline and hang out in, you know, kind of a 
relaxed fashion around this seating area. Maybe the table was a little bit lower. So they kind of be laying out on the ground, okay? So we've got Jesus and either the Pharisees or his disciples practically laying on the ground enjoying a meal together. And during this meal in a private house, a woman entered, uninvited. She wasn't part of the dinner party. She knocks probably on the door and then walks right into the, to the dinner party. And then she does what you don't do at a dinner party. You don't walk in and sit yourself down at the table where you are not invited. But she does more than that. She walks in and she sees Jesus reclining. And she lays down at Jesus' feet next to him. Anybody ever have that experience at a dinner party? No? Would anybody feel slightly awkward if you were at a dinner party and someone came in and laid down at your feet? Nobody would feel awkward about that? I would feel awkward about that. Thank you. Yeah, we got honest children here who would feel awkward about that, okay? Um, so socially what she's doing is completely uncalled for. You don't walk into a stranger's house and lay down next to them while they are having their meal. But that's what this woman did. And then she went even further. She touched him. Well, first of all, she's a single woman. He's a single man. He's a rabbi. You don't walk up to a rabbi and touch him. It's just not done. Single women don't just randomly walk up to single men and touch them in this day and age. Our culture is a little bit different, but in this day and age, it was completely unheard of, off limits. You just do not do this kind of thing. Not only was she uninvited, she laid down next to Jesus, and then she started touching Jesus. And while she was touching Jesus, she took out this alabaster jar, and I've got a picture of it here. Um, this isn't the exact jar, but this is an alabaster jar. It's a stone that you can carve. It's relatively soft, and you can make... Um, these beautiful vials, and in this day and age, they would put costly perfume in the vial. And the perfume was used for one of two things. It was so costly, it cost a year's wages, that it was either your wedding dowry, so you would have that your whole life, and then it would become your dowry so that you could have a husband, or it was your funeral anointments, so that when you died... These were the oils and the um, embalming fluids that you would use to anoint your body in, in, in preparation for your burial, okay? Very, very, very costly. You only got one, okay? So this woman comes in. She lays down next to Jesus. She starts touching Jesus. She breaks the vial on the floor or on a stone or on a table, and she takes that precious ointment, and she pours it on Jesus, now, this is a story of something else. Well, she's worshiping Jesus. There are people at the table, right? The other people, the other dinner guests, the Pharisees, um, the religious leaders, or the disciples, depending on the account you are reading. Their response is the same. They condemned her. They said, Jesus, I mean, we're talking small space here. It's very clear she was hearing what they were saying. This was not some casual whisper they socially felt the right and the authority to talk badly about her, loudly about her, in her presence. Jesus, what are you doing with this woman? Why are you letting her do this? She is doing sinful, horrible things. Why are you letting her permit? Why are you permitting her to do this? But Jesus shocked the entire dining room when he said, um, listen, I'm going to allow her to continue doing what she's doing 
Because of everything that's going on in the room right now, this is the best thing that could happen. This is the most significant thing that could happen. She was doing something socially awkward, but spiritually on target. It was socially awkward, but it was spiritually right. This is the story of a woman who found in Jesus something far more precious than anything or anyone else. We see the picture here of authentic worship, right? Worship that is physical, emotional, intimate, and extravagant. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. Typically, the alabaster passage um, is something that we talk about, um, that giving offering that we do, that sacrificial offering where we dig deep and we break our alabaster jar and we give financially or whatever it is to the cause. And it just so happens we're in alabaster month, right? So this is the month that we take our alabaster offering. I don't arrange this. I'm just preaching through the Gospel of Matthew, okay? It just so happens next week is our alabaster offering. That's all I'm going to say about finances in this sermon, okay? Because this message is not about sacrificial giving. This message is about worship. This woman demonstrates to us what the heart of worship looks like in a believer, and that's what we're going to look at. You hit the next slide. Um, worship is physical, you ever guys think about this, how worship is physical? We worship in our culture a lot like this. Right? Like this? It's true, right? We stand here, and the words will say, arms high and heart abandoned. And we sing the words. But what is our hands doing? Right? Sometimes they're like this. Or sometimes they're like this. Or sometimes they're on our phone. Right? Sometimes we hold a Bible or a hymnal so we don't feel so unspiritual. Right? But it's the same. It's very complacent. Very disconnected. This woman in this gospel story had to make a physical action to go worship Jesus. She had to make a conscious choice to move her body to go worship Jesus. She didn't stand in her house with her hands in her pockets staring at a wall, thinking about Jesus. She actually physically had to make the choice to pick up her most valuable possession, walk from her home to the place where Jesus was, enter a dinner party she was not invited to, walk up to Jesus, kneel before Jesus, lay down at Jesus' feet, break a jar open, pour it over him, and then anoint him with this oil. This is all incredibly physical, okay? This is all very physically connected kinds of things. Her worship of Jesus was firstly physical. Physical worship is an outward expression of an inward love. Physical worship is an outward expression of the inward love we have for Jesus. It is the outpouring of the heart that motivates the body to move. When you love Jesus, that love inside you wells up to the point that your physical body must move to be able to uh, expand in that energy. You guys ever sugar up your children? And they have so much sugar in their body that they just have to move, right? Sometimes we do that to ourselves. Something happens and we're just so excited, we just can't, yes, that's so exciting. And our body moves because our heart is excited. But when does that happen in church? It doesn't very often in our culture. Paul writes in 1 Timothy 2.8, 
I desire then that in every place people should pray and lift holy hands. Okay? In every place that people are praying, worshiping Jesus, hands should be lifted. And he says the hands that are lifted are holy hands. That should be an encouragement to us, right? Because even when we feel like we're not holy, when we're praying to God and connecting with him, Scripture says when our hands are lifted, our hands are holy hands because they're seeking God and they want more of God and they want more for our life than we want for ourselves. Um, Paul was actually, uh, when he was writing Timothy, he was trying to draw his original audience, his listeners, to the Psalms uh, where David was talking about worship. King David wrote uh, a chunk of the Psalms, and he understood worship. He was Israel's first worship leader, if you will. In fact, he was so not shy in his idea of worship that when the ark was returned to the nation of Israel, and they had this big parade where the Ark of the Covenant was brought in after a long time absence from the people. And the Ark of the Covenant represented God's physical presence with the people. King David was so overjoyed to be in the presence of the Lord that he stripped down to his underwear and danced through the streets rejoicing that God's presence was with the people again. Now, just for a moment, put yourself there. You have a king. You're excited because God's there, right? I mean, you're excited because God's there. And then all of a sudden, someone gets more excited than you, strips down to their underwear and starts dancing through the streets because God is here. Who is worshiping in that moment? David, the naked guy, is worshiping Jesus in the most full capacity because the overjoyed nature of his heart spilled out. Now, his wife was watching from above, and she was like, I don't know this man. Right? But God said, I know this man because he knows me. That same David who stripped to his underwear and danced through the streets naked, um, he even said this when called out on his, what the heck are you doing, King David? He said, you think this is weird? I will get even more undignified than this so I can praise my Lord. I don't know how much more undignified you can get than stripping to your underwear in the streets in front of your nation. But he said, I will do whatever it takes to worship my God. Now, the same David who stripped to his underwear encouraged the people to worship and pray in a physical sense as well because physical motion is that outpouring of your heart, right? It engages your whole mind and your soul and your body and your strength. And it has been said that the body naturally acts the way our heart feels. Have a bad day, how do you stand? Right? Have a great day? Yeah, everything's great. So, hi, how are you? You just can't wait to contain the smile because you're doing really well. Your physical body acts the way your heart feels. So in the Psalms, David encourages the people to do certain things in response to God. He says, in humility, kneel before God. If your heart feels humble before him, kneel before him. Um, if your heart feels humble before him, bow before him. If your heart feels humble before him, lay face down before God. Yes, for God. 
How many of you have laid face down before God? Completely say, yeah, it's great. It's this deeply spiritual moment where you realize, I can't stand on my own. If it weren't but for God, I got nothing. I don't deserve to be upright in his presence, but he's gracious to me to give me life. I want to show him how much I love him face down. It's not just the face down and the, the kneeling, but it also says stand up with arms high. Yes, touchdown. How many of you watch football? You guys do this when your team scored? Yes. Right? We should do that for Jesus too, right? Okay. Stand with your arms high. It says shout and clap and even dance is what the psalmist says. See, to David's culture, all of these things would have been considered progressive, edgy church, Pentecostal, and David said, let's do it all. Let's be edgy church, crazy Pentecostal for God. Physically, let's demonstrate our worship. We are called to worship in these ways, but we don't. We read those psalms and we don't act that way. We go, that's nice for those people. I'll stand with my hands in my pocket. God knows I love him. We forget that our heart shapes our posture, which means the outward expressiveness is often a marker of our inward relationship and adoration to Jesus. If we are not comfortable physically demonstrating our worship, it probably means we have something going on in our heart in relationship to Jesus. If we consistently find ourselves with arms in pockets, arms folded, singing words, but not engaging with what they mean for our life, then we might not be actually experiencing an inward heart of adoration. We might not actually be worshiping Jesus. We just might actually be going through the motions of church on Sunday morning. And we are not called to show up here and go through the motions of church on Sunday morning. We are called to show up here and worship Jesus. Now that said... Um, it's not just here that it's supposed to happen, right? Worship is not contained to an hour and a half on Sunday morning, even though we call it a worship service. We are supposed to worship with our life, everything that we are and say in every day and every minute and every... We are supposed to worship Jesus. So everything that we're talking about this morning, don't just read it into Sunday. Read it into every moment of your life. Worship is physical. Please don't go somewhere and say on Sunday, pastor told me, to strip to my underwear and dance through the streets to worship Jesus. Okay? That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, if you are worshiping Jesus, it's going to demonstrate in a physical way, and it should happen more often than on Sunday morning. The next slide. Worship is emotional. Okay? Worship is emotional. Um, some of us maybe think that we don't have emotions, or maybe we have one emotion and it's angry. Okay, and it only comes out every now and again. Um, the Hulk had one emotion and flipped on, flipped off. And that was his emotion. We are not emotionless people. We don't live in a world that is devoid of things that cause us joy, things that cause us sorrow. The whole range, right? In the account with Luke um, and the woman with the alabaster jar, it said that she wept on Jesus' feet. She came to a party she wasn't invited to. She laid down at Jesus' feet and she wept. And I just, 
for the sake of we understand what's going on here, this was not the nice, neat cry where you can dab with a tissue the corner of your eye and pretend like you had something in your eye. This was the ugly kind of crying with the snot and the tears everywhere and the red face and the, you know, and it was on Jesus. It was so violently pouring from her eyes that it fell all over Jesus to the point that she realized, my Lord's feet are soaking wet and I have nothing which to dry them but my hair. And so she starts wiping her tears off of Jesus with her hair. This is the kind of emotional response that is the culmination of an overwhelming event or overwhelming series of events in life. This woman was in the presence of Jesus and was so overcome by her sin and her brokenness of her life that she ugly cried on Jesus' feet, so much so that she had to dry them off. She demonstrated a quality of worship today that we forget about. We just forget about it. We distance ourselves from it in today's perfect, happy-faced Christian world that we live in, where we come to church and people ask, how are you? Oh, I'm great. Feeling so blessed by the Lord. Oh, it's a great week. Things are good. Things are great. I'm so glad. Bless the Lord. Things are wonderful. But inside, things are falling apart. And we put on this face when we are supposed to be in abandoned to Jesus and we pretend like everything's okay. And she made no pretense. She busted into a party she wasn't invited to. And then she started ugly crying in the middle of a dinner party because her world was falling apart. And the only thing she could do was come and weep at the feet of Jesus. She didn't speak. She wept. She mourned. And what's more is that in her, I mean, just disaster moment of, ugly cry and snotty nose and hair everywhere and people talking bad about her, Jesus said, I welcome this. This is beautiful. This is what I want to see. He didn't consider her sins or her life or her tears or her sorrows or her struggles to be a burden. He didn't condemn her or cast her aside. Instead, he said, this is well and good, and I will, and according to Luke's gospel, your sins are forgiven. Go and have hope and peace and life. Your life does not need to look like this anymore. It can look like something different because you worshiped me. The psalmists um, express the range of human emotions just so that you don't think you are exempt from human emotion, according to scripture. Let me read you some psalms. See if you find yourself in one of these emotions. I am lonely and afflicted. I love you, Lord. You are my strength. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. My life is spent with sorrow. I regret all my sin. A broken and contrite heart, God, you will not despise. Why are you discouraged, my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Shame has covered my face. But in your salvation, how greatly he exalts. This is the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. 
My delight is in the law of the Lord. You've put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. I will be glad and exalt in you. I will serve the Lord with fear. I'm going to be angry, but I won't sin. In peace, in peace, I will lay down and sleep. My eyes are wasting away because of grief. But Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. Let your steadfast love, Lord, be upon us as we hope in you. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed. I will thank you, Lord, in the great congregation. Zeal for your house has consumed me. Zeal for your house has consumed me. I love that one. I am afflicted and in pain. Though war rises against me, I will be confident. There's a human range, right? Covers just about everything we could feel or think. And scripture tells us that Jesus received the woman in her tears when her tears were all she had to give. And in response to her tears, he took them and he redeemed her. See, we have this God in Jesus who entered human history and experienced emotions. Emotions. Jesus cried. Jesus laughed. Jesus wept. Jesus was nervous. Jesus felt anxiety. Jesus experienced the things we experience and he sympathizes with us. We are commanded not only to come to him in joy, but to run to him in distress. He knows that feeling. He knows that feeling. And he is the only one who can lift you from it. Okay? So when we worship physically, our heart drives us, our body, to go. And when we arrive at Jesus, we should just let our emotions be what they are. As messy as they are, it doesn't matter. God wants that real type of relationship with us. Now, the next thing that worship is, is intimate. Okay? Um, this is the audience of one slide. The woman who we read about did something socially unacceptable, but spiritually on track. No woman, let alone a sinner like she was, as Luke tells us, would approach a rabbi in this way. It just, you just, it didn't happen, okay? She didn't just walk up to him on the street. She approached him at a meal, and she laid down at his feet, and she touched him with her hands and her hair. This is intimate. This is not like a handshake, you know, or a high five in a public setting where it's expected. This is an intimate kind of touch. This expresses the fact that she believes she will be received in intimate relationship with Jesus. Personal, socially not permitted, but Jesus said this kind of intimate relationship is okay. The disciples in Matthew, Mark, and John, and the leaders in Luke, tell us that while she was touching the Lord, they say, why is she here? Why are you letting her touch you? Why is she doing this? She's a sinner. She's not worthy. 
The undercurrent assumption here was, do you have some sort of illicit relationship with this woman? Husbands, wives, okay? You are somewhere at dinner in a public location. You're enjoying conversation. A strange woman that you don't know comes up to your table, sits down next to your husband, puts her arm around him, starts rubbing his back, tousling his hair, right? How do you feel? <laughs> right? There's a little anger right there. It's not going to go well for people in the land of the living, okay? Because that kind of touch tells us that there's something significant relationship-wise, right? The voices of the crowd there were loud enough that you know she heard them. It was a small room. But Jesus responded, listen, what she's doing is right and good. She can have intimacy with me. This is acceptable. This is what I want people to have with me. In those moments of weeping and worshiping, she didn't care about the voices of the crowd. She didn't care what people were saying. She didn't care how she looked. She didn't care anything about anything except Jesus. In that moment, when she was kneeling before the Lord, wiping his feet and anointing him with oil, there was nobody else in the room but Jesus and her, her Messiah and her. And in that moment, it was like the blinders went on and there was something very special that occurred because no other voices were heard, only the Lord's, which said, this is good. I like this relationship with you. Intimate, personal, one-on-one -on -one relationship. Jesus said in the Gospel of John, this is eternal life, that you would know Know the only true God, that you would know him. The word there is like the marriage word, to know one another, to become one flesh, to know someone in that sense that you can finish their sentence. You relate to them on a way that other people don't relate. A personal relationship, not a casual knowledge, not a, I recognize their face, but I know them and they know me. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and they know my voice, right? It's this idea of intimate relationship, that he would know you inside out, and that you would let him have, let him have access to you. Intimacy requires access. You cannot have a good marriage if you do not allow your spouse to have access to your deepest dreams and hearts and desires and wishes and failures. You must be known, and likewise, you want to know your spouse in that way. And Jesus says, I want to know you and for you to know me. I want you to know my desire and my heart and my love and my hopes and my dreams for you and your life and the world that you're in. And likewise, I want you to grant me access to your hopes and your dreams and your desires and your failures. He already knows them. But he wants you to give him access. That's a completely different kind of relationship. 
Intimate friendship and worship and submission to God is called a blessing in Scripture. It's called a blessing. Forgetting the outside voices, forgetting the voices of the world, the voices of doubt, and listening to Jesus becomes important in worship. You are forgiven. You are loved. You are wanted. You are special to God. You have a place in his kingdom. Your past does not count against you. There is a hope for you. I have plans for you. You can stand and rise in confidence. These are the kinds of things that God says to us in intimate relationship. These are the kinds of things we hope to hear when we keep ourselves distant, but we're too scared to get intimate because what if he doesn't? But he will because he's a good, gracious God. The last thing we need to know about worship, it's physical, it's emotional, it's intimate, and here's the last one. It's extravagant. It's extravagant. Worship can't be not extravagant. Worship has to be extravagant. This woman who physically walked up to find the Lord and kneel before him, wept on him, focused her eyes and heart on him alone, shows us that worship is extravagant. She held nothing back. She held absolutely nothing back from the Lord. She didn't hold back her presence. She didn't hold back the reality of her life. She didn't hold back her emotional status. She didn't hold back her desire for touch. She didn't hold back her gaze. She didn't hold back her desire for relationship. And going even further, she did not hold back the only possession she had. We cannot, I cannot stress this enough, we cannot fully worship God if we hold something back. We cannot fully surrender to God in worship if we hold something back. And that something is going to be different for every single person here. Okay? Pretty sure none of you have an alabaster jar sitting on your mantle with your special oil in it that is one time alike using. We cannot fully and truly worship God we hold back part of our life. This woman was so committed to loving the Lord that she brought him all of her life and all of her best possessions, the only thing she had. It may have been her only valuable possession, right? It may have been the only thing she had that was worth anything, a year's wages, a dowry, the funeral embalming at her death. And yet she took this precious, valuable nest egg and broke it at Jesus' feet and took the oil that was meant for her and put it on Jesus. And in doing so, she showed that everything of earthly value paled in comparison to Jesus. Everything she has and was paled in comparison to knowing the Lord. She used it to honor him. Now, in the Old Testament... This type of oil flask that she broke is mentioned a handful of times. And each time it's associated with a specific action. This word for flask that is used in this passage is used in the Old Testament for when they would anoint a king. And they would take a flask of oil and anoint a king over the nation of Israel. So in a couple instances, the prophet would go and anoint the king and it would be a great ceremony. In a couple of instances, it literally says... The Lord said to the prophet, go in, anoint him with oil, and flee as fast as you can. Political scenarios, what they were at the time, sometimes it was a rejoicing moment. Sometimes they didn't want that king over their life. 
this woman took this flask of oil. And she did what none of the disciples had done and what the religious leaders hadn't yet done either. She anointed him as her king with oil, saying, You are the Lord of my life. I anoint you as the king over me. And what you say goes, and where you go, I go. And what you say, I say. And what you tell me to do is what I will do, because you are my king, and I'm bowing in submission to you, giving everything I have to you. Extravagant worship holds nothing back. Not her life, her mind, her heart, her possessions. And this isn't about a tithe. Okay? It's not about a twice yearly offering that we collect called the alabaster offering. This is about far more than that. This type of extravagant worship is not about money. Money might be your thing that you hold back, in which case for you... Yeah, it might be about money, but this passage is not about giving a better tithe. This passage is about giving everything to God. There's this story, whether it's true or not, I don't really know. But we're going to go ahead and assume it's true because there's several documented versions of it. So bear with me, okay? There might be a little bit of truth in this historical story. Um, Roman guards got saved a way long time ago, back in the days of Roman guards. <clears throat> And they wanted to be baptized, but they were still in battle. And so they went to the baptismal waters of this lake, and they were baptized, and they walked in in all of their gear. And as they were about to be baptized, they all lifted their swords up over their head. And they went under their water except their sword, baptizing everything but the arm which belonged to the Roman government. So with all of my heart and soul and mind and body except this arm, I will worship the Lord. But with this arm, I will follow another leader. With this arm, I will take lives. With this arm, I will do things that are probably contrary to what the Lord has asked me to do. We cannot fully worship God if we hold something back. We must surrender everything to God. Extravagant worship means holding nothing back. She gave away her dowry, something that would have secured her future on earth if she was a single woman. This was her hope to have a spouse. This was her hope to have security so that she wouldn't be homeless and a beggar on the street, potentially forced to do things she wouldn't want to do. And yet she said, I trust Jesus with my future. I put it in his hands because he's my king. And if I do that, I know I'm going to be okay. Everything's going to be okay. So I worship Jesus with everything I have and everything I am. Jesus did the same thing, right? Jesus worshiped God. Though he was God, he found himself in human likeness, came to earth, obeyed God, served God, worshiped God, prayed to God, listened to God, his whole lifelong ministry. And then, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he debated with God, is there any other possible way that this could go? Because I'm not sure that I like the idea of the pain and the suffering and the humiliation that I am about to endure for the sake of your glory. But, if there is no other way, then I will obey you. Your will, not mine. Jesus 
laid everything that he was and is and hoped for, his fears and his concerns and his joys, he laid them down at the feet of God and he said, I trust you with my life and future. And then he got up from the garden and he walked to the cross and he gave his life away and willingly surrendered it, knowing and trusting God for the future. The psalmists tell us this, Surrender yourself to the Lord and wait patiently for him. Everybody okay with waiting? Sometimes the answer is not right away, is it? That does not change the fact that we are to completely surrender ourselves to the Lord and then wait patiently for God to do something. I'm going to go ahead and close with these thoughts. Worship is not a time in the service. Worship is not a time in the service. It's not a day of the week. It's not scheduled, right? God could tap you on the heart at any given point. You might go as stark, raving, crazy as David. We must be willing to be abandoned to worship at any given point. You don't schedule worship, you live worship. You live physically, emotionally, intimately, and extravagantly worshiping God in every turn, every day. The ultimate aim of worshiping God is to fully surrender your life to His in every way and shape. And you'll note that these types of worships build on one another. This isn't just a view of authentic worship. This is also the path by which we move towards maturity. As we worship Jesus, we become more like him in his image. As we worship Jesus, we mature to have better and deeper relationship with him. Get this. You start simply by physically showing up somewhere, right? Bible study, worship service, coffee shop. You have to physically be somewhere. It's not hard. We live in a tangible world. Wherever you are is where you are. So therefore, you are physically somewhere. And then at some point in your physicalness, you end up being real with God. Whether it's a conversation one-on-one -on -one you have with him or whether someone says something and you start this conversation and the walls come down and you start to express how your life really is going and how things really are playing out and your emotions start to get real and you make apologies in that conversation. Oh, man, I don't know where this is coming from. I'm sorry. And you don't have to apologize for that kind of thing because that's when your heart is being exposed and that's when it's most tender for God to work at. So you're physically somewhere and you're emotionally somewhere and then, you know, suddenly in that emotional state, intimacy occurs. I don't know how it happens. But God wants to get to the meat of the matter with you guys. And when you lay yourself open in vulnerability, God steps right in the door. Not to take advantage of you, but to lift you up and to encourage you and to put his hand underneath you and around you and on top of you. To strengthen you where you are weak and to rejoice with you while you are strong. And the more you find you are physically, emotionally, and intimately present with God, the more you will find this extravagant lifestyle of worship, 
surrender of everything, it just becomes natural. Because you realize God's got my back in the highs and the lows, and I don't need to worry about hoarding this or keeping this away or protecting this part of my life because the more intimate I am with God, the more laid bare I am before him, the less I find I need certain things in my life, whether it's a sin or a habit or a possession or whatever, and you start to realize I can live open-handedly. Everything I have belongs to God. He gave it to me, therefore I can easily give it all away. Time, money, resources, possessions, it doesn't matter because God's got my back. And the more you live life like that, the more you're starting to look like Jesus. And your words and your actions start to mimic Jesus. And then as you start to mimic Jesus more often in your life, worshiping him daily, not just scheduled, you start to have these great conversations with people who are looking for an intimate encounter with God. And you are able to lead people to have intimate relationship with Jesus. This is a beautiful picture of discipleship. This is how God plans for his church to grow. But it all starts with a believer saying, I need to worship Jesus. I need to worship him fully and completely and truly and honestly. So we're going we're gonna to enter into the singing part of our worship, okay? This has been worship as we listen to and receive the word of God. But as we enter into the singing part of worship here, um, this space is open. The floor is wide open, okay? Your chairs are obviously open because you're sitting in them. Um, here's what I would encourage you to do. Don't worship like you've always worshipped without thinking about things. Engage with God in a way perhaps you've not because you've been scared to or because you've been embarrassed to or because you're not quite sure what the person next to you is going to think. It don't matter what they think. Trying to discern what's pleasing to the Lord is what scripture says, not trying to discern what's pleasing to the person who sits next to you in church. So, as we sing these songs... Perhaps you need to physically change the way your posture is. It might be a kneeling. It might be a standing. Who knows? Maybe you're going to lay face down. Okay? Um, but whatever you do, you just stand with your hands in your pockets. Okay? There is a time for solemn worship. But it should not be every day. <laughs> right? There is a time for weeping and there is a time for joy. Ecclesiastes talks about a time for everything. Not all of us are going to worship in the same way this morning. Some of us have joy. Some of us have pain. Some of us are further along in intimacy with Jesus than others. But we are all called to pursue it to the next level. Wherever you find yourself worshiping this morning, however Pentecostal it looks or however reserved it looks. Okay? What matters is that your heart is willing to give in full abandon and extravagance life to Jesus. And in return, guarantee you will receive life and life abundantly. Let's pray and then we'll worship. Lord, we want to worship you in a new way today. Scripture tells us to worship you in singing and in weeping and with hands, and with knees, and with voices, and sometimes in silence, and sometimes with exuberation. But however it is that you are speaking to us this morning, would you help us be obedient to you? Would you help us find a new connection with you, Father? 
You died so that we could have life and life eternal. Hope with you. But it starts with worship. We will not abandon ourselves to you now. We'll find it hard to do it any other time of the week. The safest place we have to worship you is together in the body. We all proclaim the same God, the same hope, and the same future, and the same resurrection. Stand, sit, kneel, lay face down, stand in a circle, one foot in and one foot out. It doesn't really matter. We give everything we are to you, Father, and we worship you in these moments. Do work in our heart this morning, Father, for our hearts are yours. We pray this in your name.